This podcast is a segment of the book, Godly Grit, scheduled for publication in late spring or early summer 2021. It will be available at Amazon as a Kindle ebook, in paperback, and as an audiobook. Let me apologize at the onset of this chapter on addiction. I am a board-certified addiction medical specialist who has had the privilege of working with patients struggling with addiction for the last several years. This chapter is overly scientific to show the degree of brain change that occurs because of addictive substances. There is hope for the addict, but it will take more than just increased willpower. If you are interested in more information on this subject, then check out my short book on addiction titled, Now I've Gotcha. An addictive substance is a non-essential element, meaning it is not necessary to maintain or sustain life. These chemicals can impact the nervous system by producing a sense of satisfaction. It creates the desire, which is craving, and the need, which is a physiological dependency, for more of the element. Using the element repeatedly will result in a changed nervous system that now defines the element as necessary for life, as essential as oxygen, food, water, shelter, and relationships. Eventually, this element's value surpasses all the other ingredients and the addicted individual will be willing to sacrifice any of the other elements to get more of the addictive substance. The stronghold of addiction is the belief that a chemical is a solution to life's trouble and pain. It is the conviction that I can put something into my body that will alter how I feel. The trap of addiction is that once the chemical has been taken repeatedly for some time, the pain in stopping the compound becomes unbearable. The Merriam-Webster definition of addiction is the compulsive need for and use of a habit-forming substance characterized by tolerance and by well-defined physiological symptoms upon withdrawal. Broadly, the persistent compulsive use of a substance known by the user to be harmful. Addiction is a strong memory in the reward pathway of the brain. To understand this memory, we need to understand epigenetics. Genetics is the DNA that we inherit, accounting for our hair color, eye color, etc. Epigenetics is how individual segments of DNA get expressed in a cell. Every cell has the same DNA, but cells perform different functions through epigenetics. Because of epigenetics, a muscle cell is different from a kidney cell. Epigenetics allows our nervous system to remain adaptable and learn new things. Memory is an epigenetic structural change in the DNA in the neurons in your brain. Let's look at how epigenetic works in memory formation and how it works with addiction development. A stimulus causes a release of powerful neurotransmitters that directly impact the neuron's DNA in various ways that will eventually result in memory formation. 
Triggered neuroplasty is the process of stimulus-induced change. Triggered neuroplasty is the ability of the neurons to change or adjust because of stimuli. Without neuroplasty, we would not be able to learn or develop new memories or, as we shall see, develop an addiction. The most common process in triggered neuroplasty is DNA methylation. DNA methylation leads to DNA exposure. This change in the DNA is similar to the impact a cancer-causing chemical has on a cell resulting in cancer. DNA methylation prepares the cell to change its structure and function. Also occurring is a process called post-translational modifications of histones that allows the tightly coiled DNA to uncoil and expose DNA areas that can be modified. The DNA is now no longer a tightly coiled bundle of DNA. The cell structure and function continue to change through modifications of non-coding RNAs that remodel chromatin and facilitate or suppress gene expression. The cell changes and protein manufacture can be turned on or turned off. The neuron has now changed both its structure and its function. You now have a newly formed memory. Let's take a closer look at this process in the context of something we can all relate to, the development of different levels or types of memory. Short-term memory formation is the result of a minimal stimulus. This kind of memory extinguishes quickly. For example, what do you remember about last Wednesday? It was not long ago. The chances are that unless it was a special day, you do not remember much. You might remember if it was your birthday or anniversary, but if it was not, then the details are long gone. If you increase the stimulus, the memory will last longer. This is the type of memory formation you experience when cramming for exams or the memory of significant historical events, such as President Kennedy's assassination or the first moon landing. What do you remember about September 11th 2001. Do you remember that it occurred on a Tuesday? Do you remember where you were? Do you remember what you did that morning or what you had for breakfast? If you increase the stimulus even more, the memory will last even longer, to the degree it may have a lasting, lifelong impression. The event changes you. You may also act differently or interpret the world differently because of this overwhelming stimulus-caused memory. What do you remember about what happened in Boston on April the 15th, 2013? As I reported earlier in this book, this was the day of the bombing at the Boston Marathon. I can easily relive that moment, from what I had for breakfast, to the sensation of the cup of hot chocolate in my left hand as we experienced the explosion across the street. The overwhelming stimulus changed me. This level of stimulation causes a profound type of memory that may result in post-traumatic stress disorder. The process of DNA unfolding and changing both its structure and function is how different degrees of memories are formed, 
and stored. Addiction develops similarly, except the brain's area being affected is the limbic system's reward pathway. The magnitude of the stimuli caused by drugs of addiction is more overwhelming than the stimuli that result in a profound memory formation. Several medical studies have confirmed the brain's structural and functional changes in the brain's reward pathway. A study on the effects of cocaine on rats' brains showed 17 DNA changes in six brain areas. A study on heroin addicts that had been confirmed in recovery for over nine years showed ongoing significant functional MRI changes when exposed to auditory or visual drug-using stimuli. A study where subjects were given morphine 50 milligrams daily for 30 days and then followed with monthly functional MRIs showed that the brain function changes that occurred because of the morphine exposure did not improve six months after completing the study. Changes in these areas of the brain have a prolonged and dramatic effect. Some of these changes may be permanent. Chemicals that can cause addiction present an overwhelming stimuli to the neuron. This stimulus changes the DNA in the neuron. The stimuli cause a flood of dopamine from the nucleus accumbens that sends messages to parts of the brain saying, this is good and necessary. The experience or feeling is something to be desired. You now have a powerful memory of desire and craving. The impact of the stimulus in the hippocampus increases the memory of the reward experience. It reinforces the memory that this is something I do not want to forget. I should remember as much about this reward as possible, where I got it, who I got it from, the people I used it with, the room I used it in, and on and on. The impact on the amygdala is an emotional one. It produces a feeling of security, confidence, and peace. A level of completeness never experienced before the drug exposure. The impact on the prefrontal cortex is to assign a high level of value to this experience. Nothing else compares to this experience, and the now addicted individual is willing to pay whatever it may cost to maintain this feeling. As previously described, different levels of stimulus cause different permanence of memory. Varying degrees of activation of the reward system results in different levels of form desire. For example, a low-level reward stimulus results in a preference. I like puppies better than kittens is an example of a preference. I do not want to pay for that puppy or pay to take care of it for the next 17 years. With a preference, I am still free to make rational choices. Preferences can easily be changed, especially if you have an issue with your preference or a better preference presents itself. Wait till that puppy chooses your favorite shoes. Increase the stimulus in the reward pathway and you get what we call a desire. A desire comes from a felt need for a sense of completeness. This desire area is the realm of the advertising industry. If I can link your felt desire with a product that I sell, 
then the sale is easy. If I can sell you the fantasy that a new Lamborghini can give you a sense of contentment or acceptance, then you just bought a new Lamborghini. Unfortunately, the romance quickly fades with that first scratch, the $1,000 oil change, the eventual awakening to the reality that the illusion did not bring the contentment or sense of well-being it promised. But we still keep searching and buying. If you increase the stimulus even more, you have an overwhelming impulse. This overwhelming stimulus requires significant brain changes to accommodate, and you end up with an addiction. You are now past minor preference and desire, into the world of an intense craving. The chemical has effectively hijacked your neurons. Your brain tells you that you may die if you do not get the substance that produced the stimulus. Stimulus caused alteration in the function and structure of brain DNA is the disease of addiction. These addictive elements work in several different ways. They can mimic a natural neurotransmitter and activate a nerve cell directly. They can cause an increased release of a natural neurotransmitter. They can cause a delay in the removal of a natural neurotransmitter, or they can attach to a receptor and block the action of a neurotransmitter. They all share in common that to varying degrees, they all cause an increase in dopamine activity in the nucleus accumbens part of the brain. This release of dopamine labels the element as a reward and facilitates memory of the environment associated with that reward. These characteristics are all shared by the following addictive items. Sugar, caffeine, nicotine, alcohol, marijuana, opioids, cocaine, ecstasy, kratom, and methamphetamine. Why is it so hard to quit? The brain is a delicate organ designed to function with high speed while maintaining a precise balance. If there is just a little too much glutamate released, the cell dies. If too little is released, normal mental function is impossible. Each addiction has its specific neurological and physiological effects, both during the use of the substance and during abstinence. An alcoholic gets anxious, the narcotic user experiences pain, the tobacco user cannot concentrate. These highly unpleasant symptoms can be enough to encourage continued use, yet all addictions share another layer of anguish. To varying degrees, all addictions cause issues with the regulation of glutamate in the nucleus accumbens. The normal function of glutamate in the nucleus accumbens involves the release of gl glutamate with rapid activation of the next cell and then prompt removal of the glutamate by excitatory amino acid transporter 2. If the glutamate is not rapidly cleared, it can overexcite the cell causing its death. All addictive compounds decrease the effectiveness of glutamate on the cell membrane and reduce the activity of excitatory amino acid transporter 2. During times of abstinence, this regulation becomes very unstable, causing a sense of severe anxiety, stress, 
sleep disturbance, profound fatigue, poor memory function, and even cell death. Abstinence feels like impending death, and the loss of control over mental processes feels like insanity. The brain, its delicate balance, and proper function is now the prisoner of the compound. Choosing to consume a known toxic chemical feels like life, when in reality, it is a movement towards a premature death. The battle with the stronghold of addiction is a war. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. My divinely loved friends, since you are resident aliens and foreigners in this world, I appeal to you to divorce yourself from all the evil desires that wage war within you. If you are struggling with addiction, it is possible to divorce yourself from the raging war. It is possible to remain sober with grit and resolve, but willpower alone will not free you from addiction. It will take humility, honesty, an attitude of gratitude, and the power of the Holy Spirit to be truly free. God loves you and has provided a way to be free from the power of the addiction. If you do not struggle with addiction, then keep in mind 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober, well-balanced and self-disciplined. Be alert and cautious at all times. That enemy of yours, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, fiercely hungry, seeking someone to devour. The snare of the stronghold of addiction will rob you of everything you value.